This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Friday. Set participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome. You're listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food. Do you dream in food? Are you starting your first job, trying to change your path, writing your CV right now, or simply curious as to how the food on your plate gets there? We're focusing on the careers side of the food industry in this new series. I'm your host, Miriam Nice, and in this podcast, I'm going to be uncovering what it takes to have some of the most enviable jobs in the wonderful world of food. In the last in the present series of the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast, I'm joined by a leader in the food world, managing editor of Good Food and Olive, and self-confessed food anorak, Lulu Grimes. Welcome to the podcast, Lulu. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You, um, you've likely worked with, or will work, everyone we've spoken to so far on the podcast. Um, in your own words, can you describe a little bit about you and uh, the work that you do? So, my current position, um, I work for the um, IM Food Group and I work across um, BBC Good Food and Olive Magazine. And that encompasses um, print and websites and um, webinars and all sorts of other platforms. And what I do is um, oversee how we represent food. I think it's probably the best way of putting it. So, you know, there are people in my team who um, plan recipes and organise what's going into print issues and what's going onto the website. But I kind of have oversight over everything that we do and try and keep sort of underlying themes on track. So that might be, I might think about sustainability across everything we do, or I might try and make sure that you know, we're getting recipes from all sorts of different people um, and that we might be looking more carefully, for example, 
I might say that's a recipe that's within the family section. Have you thought about the size of the plates you're using? Because actually it's for children, it's not for adults. And it's really important that we show portion sizes that are correct. So all those things that you think probably no one's really giving much thought to are the kind of thing that I spend all day thinking about. I love that idea of like representing food. Like that's that's kind of a key like the food's the talent, like the food's the star in quite a lot of those instances. That's great. And when did your career in food begin? Well, it's sort of my actual sort of introduction to food. I it really began with my mother, who was a who used to teach food cooking. Well, home economy it was known as it was known in those days. So she insisted that all myself and my two sisters learned something about food we were all at boarding school so we were always being being cooked for unless we were home in the holidays and we were away because we lived abroad but anyway she she at one point decided that it was time that we learned sort of how to cook but also how to think about how much food cost so one holiday she started giving us um, a small amount of money and we had to go to the shops plan the menu buy the food come home and cook it so that's really how I sort of started thinking about food as something that I would do. There were also kind of slightly weird little offshoots, um, which aren't really about cooking, but she also, as well as te- teaching home economy, she also ta- taught needlework. And for some reason, we used to sew quite a lot of stuffed pieces of food. I don't know, it was one of the, I don't know if it was on the curriculum or, or just something that she liked doing, but I remember making chicken drumsticks, for example. Amazing. Have you still got them? Um, No, no, we haven't. (laughs) But actually, just one more thing about having a mother who teaches food is, uh, I think how we used to work with kids would take take money in if they wanted to take whatever it was home, they'd pay for the ingredients. Or maybe they just just cooked them, but they were always the things that people didn't want to take home. Generally, because they've messed them up. Scotch eggs with the shell still on come to mind. <laughs> and my mum would bring them home. Crikey. <laughs> what is your earliest memory of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was it always something in food? No, it wasn't something in food. And I seem to remember my mother telling me not to be a teacher. I did a history of art degree and I went to work for Christie's. But I worked for the education part of Christie's. And while I was there, I was doing the admin for the wine course, amongst other things. And um, I ended up doing the catering for it. And then by then, my parents had bought a restaurant and they'd come back to this country. So, yeah, my life was getting more and more sort of wound up with food. If I went home and I wanted to speak to my mother, I had to be in the kitchen. And if I wanted to speak to my father, I had to be out the front. So, um, it you know, food sort of became quite a big part of our all of our lives really but my sisters never really went down that route and uh, I asked for my 21st birthday for a short lease course as a present so I went to lease and did three days I think it was and decided that I would really like to do their year-long course so I went back to my job at Christie's and saved money for a few years and then left Christie's I was spectacularly bad at working at Christie's and um, yeah I went to work at Leith, uh, well, went to do the Leith course for a year and then went into food. And would you say that your job now is your dream job? Yeah, I think I've always had a dream job and my job has changed a lot over time because my dream job is just um, working with something to do with food, but it's it's more than just, I mean, I like cooking. I, I enjoy cooking. I like, you know, cooking for other people or you know I did used to enjoy working at restaurants and things like that but I think I like sort of the planning and the idea of deciding what people might like to cook 
and what they might like to make and what they might like to eat above everything else. And what about what you like? What was the last thing that you ate? Piece of toast this morning. <laughs> but I did make the marmalade, Miriam. Oh, lovely. <laughs> other than that, you know, it's one of those things that when you're always thinking about um, food for other people, that I'm really bad at following recipes. So I tend to just open the fridge and see what there is. And um, yeah, it's a Friday, so not a lot is the answer. <laughs> You've mentioned like what your family thought. What did your friends think when you said you wanted to make that switch into food? Oh, they were delighted. They just got to eat more. I mean, (laughs) I used to cook quite a lot when I lived in a shared house. And there were another couple of people who lived in the house who also liked to cook. One of of my flatmates, Alan, made a very good pavlova. So, you know, he was on the baking end of things. And then one of my other flatmates, David, um, actually opened a works canteen where he worked. So... We all used to quite like cooking and everyone else were very, very happy to eat. So we used to experiment. I remember we had the Raymond Blanc cookbook and we used to make the most obscure things out of it. Terrines and um, all sorts of things. And go and find, you know, this is a long time ago, I'm quite old. Go and find ingredients like morel mushrooms because we really fancied the sort of pork and morel dish. It's always like a favourite thing of mine to do, like in a restaurant, like order something that sounds a bit strange to see what happens. And I think that's a nice idea for cookbooks as well. Like, you know, what's the weirdest or most spectacular thing in this book? Let's see if we can try and make it. Oh, yeah, sounds yeah. Great. That's why you end up sort of carrying a live octopus home in a plastic <laughs> <laughs> Talk me through a typical, if there is a typical day for you, is it nine to five? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think when you work in food, quite often you just never switch off from it. So, for example, when I wake up in the morning, I hate getting out of bed. So I tend to read uh, the American newspapers online. So I'll read the food sections of those newspapers until I absolutely have to get out of bed. And then late at night, I'll be reading stuff maybe in the UK papers or a book or something like that, or I might be listening to something. So it never really stops. If you see what I mean, it's kind of like, the whole time, if you're in the kitchen the whole time, I work in the kitchen at the moment, working from home, everything around me is to do with food. Um, that's probably why I'm not thin. You know, and, and you walk outside onto, you know, the high street and everything, you know, so much stuff around you is about food. You can't walk past a food shop without noticing what's in the window or, you know, if there's a market stall or if someone's got something outside or there's a menu up or something like that. I just think when you're immersed in what you like doing, it's everywhere so there's no nine to five and every bit of information is relevant in some way or other even if it's oh my god let's hope let's never do that you know is is as relevant as oh that's a great idea over there or I've never heard of that ingredient or you know why are coffees so big these days (laughs) that's my thought for today (laughs) (laughs) what are the common misconceptions that people have about what you do do you think? I, well, whenever I say to people, oh, well, you know, I used to say, oh, well, I work for Olive Magazine or I work for Good Food. People would say, oh, do you go out to restaurants all the time? They think that that's what it means. You, you spend your life going out to restaurants and eating. And yes, I do. I'm very lucky. I get to go to quite a lot of restaurants and eat. But I think a lot of people don't think any further than, oh, you're a restaurant reviewer when you say that, you know, you work for a food magazine. And when you say, oh, no, no I can write recipes. They're sort of like, oh, it's almost like, no one really gives a thought to who who does those things because it's I suppose it's 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 quite a weird thing, isn't it? Writing a recipe if you think about it, putting your thoughts on paper. It's a bit like you know any kind of writing. 
you have to conceive it and have the idea and sort of test the theory and everything like that. And I, I think people sort of think, oh, I never really thought of it like that. Yeah, because I guess their interaction with it is that they're, I need to make something for this occasion, for this reason. And they're focusing on what, you know, their side of the conversation, basically, and not, you know, the journey that it took to get there, perhaps. I which think is fair so. enough. And I think also, I think the world's divided into sort of two kinds of people. There are people who think they can't cook unless they've got a recipe for follow. And there, there are people who will just cook anyway, whether there's a recipe that, there or not, and they'll give it a go. And I think if you're the, the give it a go mentality, then you sort of just get on with things and you might look things up and, you know, you understand, it's almost like understanding the sort of science behind it or why things do and don't work and you've got there slightly by default or someone's taught you, if you're lucky. And then there's the other side of things where, you know, it's like, I have to follow the manual. If I don't follow the manual, something horrible will happen. And that's very different. So if you're talking to people who always follow a recipe, then it's sort of, they probably don't necessarily have have thought about how that recipe gets, gets to be there. They're just very grateful that someone's written it down. It's a bit like, you know, building a bookshelf or something <laughs> i mean you know it's like user manuals isn't it there's some people who never re- read the user manual they sort of just think oh i'll just plug it in and go and then there are other people who sort of read the entire thing um i wouldn't even attempt something otherwise yeah i think i, I sort of stand in the middle somewhere probably <laughs> <laughs> i know like skim reading it and then when it starts going wrong refer <laughs> yeah exactly or watch, or watch a watch a video somewhere to put you right i know but yeah. it's, you know it's the same with um with cooking isn't it? i think people get scared of cooking if they're not ever, not introduced to it so you know if you live in a home where someone says to you oh you know there's a pan turn the heat on put the water in you know put the thing in and then they say well how long do i wait and you say well it's uh, until it's ready G- go and look at it don't don't keep walking away then you sort of learn learn about things and then you might come to an understanding that actually oh that's why I always need to I mean I drive my child mad because so I sit with my back to the stove I'm working in the kitchen and he's cooking and I will say that pan's up too high because I can hear it and he'll be like how do you know how do you know it's like turn it down um you know because you can actually hear something going wrong behind you you don't even need to be able to see it and that's way before the smell ever reaches you You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's almost like when you work in food media, because that's the thing about working websites, magazines, um, that kind of food media is it's all seasonal. So if you're always referring to I don't know, newspapers, magazines, or what's coming up on websites, 
you're always going to be sort of seasonally led through what you should be cooking and eating. If you don't take any notice of that, but you've got three or four cookbooks that you really like, then your eating is going to be completely led by what you like. And you might not think seasonally at all. So it it really, really isn't one size fits all for for people. How people like to eat, what they like to eat, it, it depends where they're getting their information from. And if they're not using cookbooks at all and they're just, you know, giving it giving things a go, then again, you know, you're being led by what you can do, what you like to eat, what you want to eat. And then you'd have a very different experience to following sort of, you know, saying, oh, I'll always make five recipes from that magazine. And, you know, you will move through the seasons. You will be making your pancakes on pancake day and then Easter will come along and suddenly there'll be a lot of chocolate. And then you'll move through, you know, summer barbecues, picnics and onwards to Christmas. So how how you end up sort of consuming food or cooking recipes or anything else sort of depends on which bit of the media you're getting your information from unless you're getting it like me as complete overload from absolutely everywhere complete overload but also completely out of sync with the seasons half the time I suspect so you'll be having Christmas dinners in July and things so (laughs) yeah I had a couple last week as well actually (laughs) yeah I've had quite a lot of turkey already this year I know you know it's kind of like you're always working out of season you know we're planning February at the moment we're talking about March and Easter so yes you're always out of sync you're out of sync in print because the deadlines are much further forward that's magazine print not newspaper print but on the website you're in real time so you know it's a a slightly split world of what actually is going on and then of course if you work in that side it's always interesting trying to get a turkey in july or sprouts for that matter (laughs) so you know there's all the I'm sure other people probably talk about that, but there's all the associations with, you know, what you need to take a picture of, what you want to write a recipe about, what you've got to test with. Um, And also there's the trend side of things. It's like you're always trying to second guess what's coming up, what people might want to eat, how they're going to be eating it. You know, are we all going to be together this Christmas or not? Particularly that last Christmas, um, you know, and so on through the year. It's like, what are the possibilities? And let's face it, when you get to summer, it's like, what is the weather going to be like? You know, we never know whether actually August is it's going to pour down all August, which quite often does. So, you know, your chances of a picnic are fairly slim, except under a large umbrella. You spoke about um, like different people and the way people approach cooking, but you work with a variety of different people. So right from colleagues at the very start of their career up into meeting a chef at a restaurant press event who's, who's kind of at the top of theirs. Perhaps helpful for all careers, how do you bring people who work in such different ways and at so many different levels together? Have you got any advice? I think one of the things you really have to think about is... Um, the knowledge level people have because even if they don't appear to have a huge amount of knowledge on some levels they've probably got a lot on other levels so it's a case of trying to find what their particular knowledge is because everyone's always learning nobody knows everything you know there are some people who know an awful lot but you know take for example a chef a chef might be able to cook all sorts of different things but they've probably always had the prep done for them. You know, 
especially if they've sort of reached to a certain level, they probably don't have to do the prep anymore. They certainly don't have to do the washing up anymore. So their concept of what a recipe that can be made at home is, is completely different to someone who is conceiving that recipe and practicing that recipe at home and having to do all those things. I think that was one of the most interesting things that happened when we all had to work from home was suddenly people realised exactly how much washing up you know, that a, res- a recipe could produce. And then you start thinking, well, actually, that's that's completely not useful for people at home, is it? You know, if you've got to use five pans, you might not even have five pans, let alone want to wash up five pans to make something that probably could be done in two. You know, and it's 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 that kind of thing. So, you know, people have different, and we brief quite carefully as well. You know, if we're briefing out to chefs, it's sort of like, think about this. Think about what people at home have. You know, that ingredient, you might be able to buy it in a kilo bucket and you've always got it on hand. But actually for someone just to go out and do the shopping, they probably can't find it in any shop. Therefore, do they have to order it online? And can you buy it in a small amount? Because no one wants to be <laughs> left with a bucket. I've still got the most massive tub of Tonka beans because I had to buy them at a time where you couldn't buy a couple. You had to buy sort of, you know, 500 grams of them and you only need a tiny amount each time if you're cooking at home there aren't that many recipes I use tonka beans in so you know it's it's thinking things like that through if you're talking you know if you're trying to get a chef sort of to, to write some recipes for people at home or it might be you know not everyone has a barbecue so when you're thinking about writing barbecue recipes you know you might have a state-of-the-art enormous great ceramic barbecue does everyone no, they absolutely don't. They might have, you know, one of the tiny little grills. Is it going to work on that? Have you thought about, you know, if you if you could even fit whatever it is you're making onto that grill? You know, it's kind of like you have to think about the person you're making things for and the person you're writing recipes for, not you. Yeah. So there's that respect there for that level of yeah. knowledge and then also just that focus on the end result or the end audience, really. I think that's... That's, That's quite right. a unifying yeah. thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. But also, you know, people have different different things they know about that. They, they might have learned in sort of slightly different ways. So, you know, if you've done, I don't know, if you've trained, trained in a French restaurant or you've done butchery in France or something, they cut the animals up differently to we do here. You know, it's the same in America. So it's like, you know, you're asking for a cut that doesn't, doesn't necessarily exist over here. So there, there's that of knowledge as well you know or actually how do you use a knife you know if you're taught um sort of technical what i would call french way which i suppose is also you know the way we use now of using a knife that's completely different if you go to asia i grew up in india you know everyone had a small knife everything was cut with a small knife and you sort of cut it in your palm into little pieces it wasn't you know the or you've got to make a claw and you've got to cut your onion like this completely different so you also have to think about those levels of knowledge too and what's most useful for people at home yeah other other places use like a cold cleaver to just do everything exactly oh yeah my mum mostly used a pair of scissors so yeah just yes (laughs) very useful scissors I have to say (laughs) are there any um qualifications or certifications you mentioned that you did Leith that you recommend people starting out so okay so the this was a long time ago that I did the lease course and the reason I did it was because they I didn't really know any other way of getting into the industry and in fact even when I did the course I didn't really know what I I wanted to do my parents had a restaurant I knew that was hard work so I wasn't sure 
uh, which way it was going to go. At the time I did the course, lots of people were going off and, I don't know, cooking in chalets or for shooting parties or for directors' dining rooms and, and things like that. Those jobs still exist, but there weren't many food media jobs. So I, I, didn't, I hadn't really even thought about that particularly. And then um, I did a slightly... But one thing about going to college, whatever kind of college it is, whether it's, a, you know, your local college or paying for a private... Um, course like Leith's is usually the colleges will help you because they'll bring people in to talk to you about what happens in the industry so that's one of the sort of the ways you learn about new things and you can get quite a lot of that information online now there's quite a lot of good people doing sort of online courses about you know working in different bits in the food industry we have them on good food you know there's series of guides on there on how to do various things so when I started well first of all I went and did a slightly bonkers job cooking for pop groups and then um I was just really lucky I suppose I I would say one of the things about cooking and food is it, sometimes it, you just someone asks you a question can you do this and you just have to say yes whether you can or not I would say I've started at least three jobs <laughs> completely unable to do them but I've sort of managed to work it out quite quickly yeah and someone said you know there's a job going with Delia Smith. Are you interested? And I just said, yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's, that's, that was how I got my start was, you know, here's doing the, with, with someone else doing the, here's what I made earlier um, for the TV shows, which um, taught me an awful lot in a very short space of time. Things you don't think about, like if you are continuity, you know, if you're going to roast a leg of lamb, they've all got to be the right-hand leg, or they won't match. <laughs> um, so I was doing the food ordering for that. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a complete education, I have to say. You know, ringing the butcher up and saying, I need le- three left legs, please. <laughs> that would have been a good good phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Every job you take, especially if you take a lot of different jobs, teaches you another thing or another few things. And there's always assistance jobs out there. And the, I think the best thing you can do sometimes is to try and get some work experience. Just, you know, can I do a day scheduling you or a day helping you? Or can I just come and do your washing up? You know, if you can afford to do that, you know, you don't have to do it for weeks or months. It's just, you know, can I just come and see how you do what you do? And then I gradually worked through from doing sort of the and there were quite a few people working on the TV thing because it's quite fast and, you know, time is money. There were four of us, I think, working behind the scenes, yeah. So, you know, you learn all the time from doing things like that. And then after that, I went to work for Sainsbury's magazine. Um, Celia was doing the food on that at the time. And again, you know, I didn't know anything about working in magazines. So, you know, I went and, you know, just got on with it. And then again... At the time, it was great. We had Nigel Slater writing a column. We had Simon Hopkinson writing a column. You know, again, you learn all the time. But you also learn from trying to manage other people if you're working within the magazine. remember having quite a long conversation with Simon about how much parsley you needed for parsley soup because at the time, Sainsbury's was selling little packets I think it was 20 grams and you needed a massive bunch and it was sort of like well we need to persuade them to sell big bunches <laughs> because you know you need an awful lot of little packets so all the time it's sort of it's, it's almost like logistics 
constant logistics of how you can actually make recipes easy for people or or give them the opportunity to make things that they might not have thought of making. It sounds like your career has been very yes focused. There have been these opportunities. You said yes, and that's been a really good sort of path for you. Is is that the kind of thing that you would say to people who have an established career but want to progress even further? So not necessarily at the beginning, but sort of somewhere towards the middle. Yeah, I, I, I would say always, I mean, within limits, but, you know, yeah, always say yes, because the likelihood is you will be able to do something. Um, and you can, and, uh, and as I just said, you know, a lot of it is is quite logical. You know, it's like, okay, so you can cook. So then can you test a recipe? Yes, you can test a recipe if you think about it, because all you're thinking is, what does testing a recipe mean? It means cooking this recipe through and seeing if it works. So where are all the points it might or might not work? You know, from have I got enough equipment or can I buy the ingredients to, oh, it says to put the oven on there, but I'm not actually going to put it in the oven for another four hours because I've got to prove the bread. It's like, well, then that instruction is patently in the wrong place. So, you know, it's things like that. It's, It's like you have to think, what is the job that I've been asked to do? Can I do it? and and actually yes I probably can do it if I've just uh, sort of make myself a little explainer about what I'm supposed to be doing it's almost like briefing yourself you know if someone says do you go and find I don't know the 10 best burger restaurants in London it's like how how would you go about that yes you probably can do it because you probably know enough people or know enough places to look or you're going to go and eat a lot of burgers to find out you know it's like working out what exactly the end point is and how you're going to get there. And your job is still, I think, quite varied. Do you enjoy, there's, there's an element of like public speaking. Um, where are you most happy? Is it in, in a meeting room? Is it broadcasting like on radio or, or on this? Or is it still in the kitchen? Um, <clears throat> it's probably a more in the thinking ahead. The thinking bit is probably what I enjoy the most. And they're trying to work out what's going to happen in three years' time or one year's time or even further ahead and whether we're on the right track or whether, I you know, it's like, uh, for example, do we have enough recipes that can be made in a pressure cooker? Because actually I know people have started to buy pressure cookers now. So we need some recipes. It's like, so at the moment, that not, not that many people may have them, but they might do in the future. Same with a slow cooker or something like that. It's like, okay, so we, we, there is a need out there. Can we fulfill that need? So that, that's one way of sort of constantly thinking ahead. Then there's, mm, should we be eating less meat? Yes, we should. Should we be eating no meat? Possibly. So how, how are we going to address that situation? Okay, we are almost out of time, but can I ask you to leave us with a few things that you think anyone wanting to progress their career in food should know about or do? I think one of the most useful things to do is to find people to follow on social media who are doing interesting things or who have interesting jobs because people tend to be very generous in what they share on social media. So you get sort of little insights into what's happening or who's doing something or what's going on. Whether that be someone saying, oh, I've just listened to a really interesting podcast or there's a lecture on here or so-and-so has been talking about this, you should go and look at their feed. I think 
sort of the generosity of sharing is much much easier now because of social media so I would it's almost like you have to do a bit of research work and you have to sort of think about it you find someone you like and you follow them and see who they're following and then work out you know what might be interesting or useful for you and every now and then jobs come up like that as well someone will say I I need an assistant next Tuesday or you know tomorrow someone's ill can anyone help um so there are sort of opportunities that way so if you want to be a food stylist, follow food stylists or photographers because something might come up. In my experience, most people don't mind if you drop them, you know, a DM or an email or something saying, if I ever can, please can I come and learn from you or, you know, spend a bit of time with you. I spend quite a lot of time doing interviews for students who are uh, trying to put together newspapers or that kind of thing because I think you should. You know, how is anyone ever going to know if you don't take time to tell them? Um, So, again, there's that. There's also, if you can, look beyond this country. So see what's going on in Australia. Read the Sydney Morning Herald if you can get access to it, you know. If you, you know, can have a look at stuff on New York Times. I mean, quite a lot of these things are behind paywalls, but every now and then they drop the paywall. And... Go to the library or go and sit in the cookbook section of uh, of a bookshop. No one seems to mind that anymore. They even put chairs in there. So, you know, there, there are lots of places that you can get hold of information. But definitely, I think, taking the lead from people, following them, seeing what they're up to and, and engaging. You know, there are people who've come and worked for us who have started off by simply engaging on social media and then saying, oh, can I come into the test kitchen? Um, so yeah we can fit you in we'll put you in the test kitchen don't all write at once please um (laughs) (laughs) you know and and also think about a niche market if you've got access to something it might be through your heritage or because you can do a particular thing or you're really good at icing cakes or whatever it is you know think about what it is that you specialize in it's always much easier to kind of go in on a specialization than to um just say oh you know I'm open to anything and I'm, you know, I'll have a go at anything. If you can find something that you're particularly interested in, you know, you might have tasted, I don't know, 94 different types of chilli. That information is useful for someone, but you might have done it in your own time just because you're interested in it. There's also quite a few newsletters that you can get. Um, Again, some of them are free, some of them are not, but even the ones that are not free are not particularly expensive. So um, you can look up sort of food newsletters quite often people who write those tend to be on twitter and then they'll you know put a tweet out and you or you can see where the link to their newsletter is and yeah go out and eat i don't know i'm i I don't really like i'm the kind of person who doesn't really like I, i can't walk into a party and just start talking to people but sometimes you have to force yourself to do things like that go to the market chat to every stall holder you know quite often if there's no queue you know and someone's got a stall and they're selling I don't know their homemade kimchi or whatever talk to them because you might learn something or they might you know say oh well I did it like this and then you'll again you'll learn something and you know lastly obviously if anyone ever asks you you just say yes yes I can make you a cake in the shape of Big Ben then <laughs> go and work out how to do it that sounds like from experience have you made a cake it wasn't big ben it was a summer (laughs) palace in oh god it was someone's (laughs) wedding cake and it was a summer palace in um in russia 
And I did make a cake that looked like a summer palace in Russia. Incredible. It was in Tatler. <laughs> There's evidence. There are pictures. Absolutely brilliant. Lily, thank you so much for joining me on the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast. Oh, well, thank thank you for letting me talk to you. And a big thanks to all the guests so far in this series. Lulu is going to be recording a bonus episode with us in which you'll learn some more essential trade secrets directly from her. So don't miss that at the weekend. For more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Bye for now. You've been listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food, hosted by me, Miriam Nice. 